If you join me at Bible study today, please open up your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, to chapter 10, to verse 11. But verse 11 begins with the word thus. You can't begin a Bible study at the word thus. You have to back up a verse to see what they're talking about. What's the context? And it's verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. That's not what the Hebrew says. Do you remember what it says? The Lord is the God of truth. That is, every word that comes out of the mouth of God is true. He never has to apologize and say, well, <clears throat> that's not what I meant. I misspoke. Let me correct that. Back the tape up a little. He is the God of truth. He is the living God. You know the difference in Hebrew between the living God and a living God? The living God means there's only one. He is the true and living God from all eternity. And he is the everlasting king. Do you know what that means? The everlasting king. He will be king for how long? Forever. Without end. At his wrath, the earth will tremble. When does God pour out his wrath on the entire world? That's in the tribulation period. So it's focusing our attention on the days that are just so shortly before us. It says, and the nations, plural, will not be able to endure his indignation. What is that word indignation in Hebrew? Remember, it is za'am, Z-A apostrophe A-M. The very same word used in Isaiah 26 that says, Come, my people, enter your marriage chambers before the za'am gets poured out on the world. It's the same word used in Isaiah chapter 66 when it's talking about Messiah coming in wrathful judgment at the time of the day of the Lord, the time of the tribulation period. That's why it begins, thus you shall say to them. Now we know who them is, right? Quote, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens, unquote. So who's he talking to? He's talking about pagan idolaters, Gentiles who refuse the worship of the true and living God and instead worship sticks and stones and little pieces of metal that they make with their own hands or hire to be made for them. These pagan idols shall cease. They shall come to an end. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Honestly, quite often I hear Christians say to me, Idolatry is now allowed. Paul said so. No, sir. Paul did not say pagan idolatry is allowed. We're misreading something if that's what you think it says. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is a list of those characteristics of the unrighteous that will not share eternity with you. It says in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous... What's another term for the unrighteous? The lawless. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Why would Paul say do not be deceived? Are there false teachers trying to persuade people otherwise? Yep. There were and there are. He says neither fornicators nor idolaters. See that word idolaters? 
the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor reviters, nor extortioners. Here's the main point. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. So those practicing idolatry, can they expect to be on the path to heaven? The answer is no. When it says, will not inherit the kingdom of God, what will they inherit? The smoking place, the lake of fire, the place we don't want to go to. To Galatians 5 is where we're going. Paul taught this same thing to many different congregations that he started throughout the world. Because many of them were in areas of the world characterized by pagan idolatry. And the natural desire of people is, well, Paul, yes, I'll go down this road with you, but let me also keep going to the pagan temples with my family so they won't think I'm strange. We've got to put up our trees. We've got to paint our eggs. We've got to do these things or they'll think we're weird. You know what the Bible says? They're supposed to think we're weird. We're supposed to be different from the world. He says, we are a peculiar people. If we were of the world, the world would love us. The world doesn't love us because we're not of the world. We're in the world, but we're not acting like the world. Have you found Galatians 5 yet, or so I kept you too off balance? Okay, verse 19. Now, it's not now, it's just and. The works of the flesh are evident. Let me ask this. Are works of the flesh good things? That put you in right standing with God? No, just the opposite. Works of the flesh are evident. What does evident mean? It means they're obvious. Have you heard the expression obvious to the most casual observer? Adam Co? Yes. Which are adultery, fornication. You know what? Churches are ordaining people that are practicing these things. But what does the Bible say? It says don't. Uncleanness. Uncleanness. Does that include eating unclean foods? Yes. Lewdness. Idolatry. There's that idolatry again. Sorcery, which includes drug abuse. Hatred. Contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, reveries, and the like. What does and the like mean? That's not a full list. It's not a full list, right? You're right. Just as I also told you in times past, Paul says I've told you this over and over again, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are very strong words. Paul doesn't say if you're doing these things, well, you know, you might want to think about it because, well, we don't know what's going to happen come Judgment Day. What does he say? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then let's go on to 1 Peter chapter 4. No, let's go to Colossians first. That way I take you in order from beginning to end and not jump around. Colossians 3, verse 5. 
Remember how scripture says if your right hand's offended, you cut it off? Well, this is kind of like that. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. Therefore, put to death your members which are on earth, colon, meaning these are the things to stop doing. Put them to death. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So is idolatry good or bad? Bad. Because of these things. Because of what things? Because of these sins? The wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. That wrath of God is the tribulation period. Does God send the tribulation period and has poured out wrath upon his children, upon his servants, or upon his enemies? According to, first, according to Isaiah 66, verses 14 to 17, it's upon his enemies. So what do these sins make you to God? Not precious children, right? But an enemy. It says, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. What does he mean by you used to before you got saved? saved. Once you got saved, you continue to walk in these things. No. You will hear many preachers out there today saying that you cannot repent. Because if you do, that shows a lack of faith in God. How many times does the New Testament say repent or repentance? About 60 times. If God says something once, it's important. Twice, it's really important. 60 times. And I wouldn't go around saying he's got it wrong. Now to 1 Peter. That way we keep going in order. First Peter, chapter 4, verse 3. After telling us that Messiah suffered because of our sins, and we should not want to encourage more suffering, he says in verse 3, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime, meaning before you got saved, in doing the will of the Gentiles. By Gentile he means what? Pagans. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and an abominable idolatries. If Paul calls idolatries abominable, is he telling us those are good things? Or those things to put on the bad list and not do. Put them away. Have nothing to do with idolatry. It says in regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. He says your friends, your relatives are mocking you and making fun of you and despising you because you won't participate in these things with them anymore. You know what? That's okay. If they don't want to like us anymore, they don't have to like us anymore. Who will judge us come judgment day? Our neighbors? Our friends? Our families? Or does the Lord himself judge us? And did the Lord tell us what standard will be judged by and against? Then that's something we ought to pay attention to. 
Let's go to Revelation chapter 21. The whole point, if you can't remember why we got here on this journey here, is because idolatry shall come to an end. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. Since it begins with the word but, let's back up a verse to seven. It says, he who overcomes, that word overcomes appears in Revelation over and over again. And it's defined for us in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. How many of you want that in your future? Absolutely. But in order for him to be your God and you to be his child, you must overcome. Verse 8, but here's the folks who didn't overcome. The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers. There's that idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We have found nothing yet to suggest that idolatry is ever, ever going to be acceptable in the eyes of God. So let's go back to the Old Testament and see what does it say. Let's go to first Ezekiel chapter 43. Let me ask this. Am I the only one people tell that Paul said we can do idolatry and it's okay? Or have you heard it too? Never. You never heard that? Good. Then close yours. You have to listen to this. I'm in very fundamental churches. Yeah. Ezekiel 43, verse 7. Ezekiel 43 is the return of the Lord at the end of the tribulation period to establish his kingdom on earth. It says in verse 7, he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne. In a place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name. They nor their kings by their harlotry, which means their idolatry, or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places. What were the high places used for worshiping? Pagan idols. When Ezekiel 43, as a prophet of God, says there will be no more idolatry, what does that mean? It means there will be no more idolatry. Really? Hmm. Made a note that that verse is Aramaic. Okay, let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 10. We're up to verse 12. If all pagan idolatry is going to perish from the earth, going to be wiped out, going to be removed, then what will people worship? The true and living God. Verse 12. He, that is the God of truth, the living God, the everlasting king, has made the earth by his power. The point is, which pagan idol helped God do that? Not a one. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom. Oh, who advised him? You ought to make it this way. You ought to make it that way. Nobody. 
It was through his wisdom and has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. God put the sun, moon, and stars up there for a reason, according to Genesis 1.14. Let's go back and look at that. Genesis 1.14. Some people think, well, you know, God just took a paintbrush and, and splattered and the lights went all over the place. But no, there was a very definite pattern to it. Verse 14, then God said... Verse 14, then God said, how did God create the heavens and the earth? He spoke it into existence. Does God stutter? Then why did it take six days? Because God was trying to teach us things through creation. That there would be 6,000 years from creation till the day of the Lord. And that day of the Lord will be the fulfillment of the Sabbath day. The millennial kingdom. Anyway, said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. But that word seasons does not mean winter, spring, summer, and fall. That word is zaman, Z-E-M-A-N. This is what? The Moedim. The appointed times in Leviticus 23, which include the Sabbath, and then seven appointed times that teach the first and second coming of Messiah. So the sun, moon, and stars, the lights in the heavens are not there by accident. They're not haphazard. They're there for very specific reasons. And when did God just show us a ring of fire eclipse? Just at the time that Hamas invades at the behest of Iran. And what does fire indicate? Judgment. Somebody's going to get it. Okay, but let's go back and look at these cross-references. In verse 12, it says, Only the Lord God. He was the one who created the heavens and the earth. He established it by his wisdom. He stretched it out. It was the work of his hands through our Messiah, Yeshua. How do we know? Go to John 1.1. 1, 1. John 1.1. 1, 1. I still have people that say, But Wayne... Jesus wasn't born yet. You gotta think a little broader than that. John 1 1, the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. Yeshua is God from all eternity. He was there at the beginning, He was the creative element. He holds it all together. Now the scripture says, on the word of two or more, let all things be established. Is there any other witness in the Bible that it was done by and through our Messiah? Let's go to Colossians 1, which was written by Paul. And who taught Paul? He says, the Lord did himself, right? If Yeshua said, I did it, what can you draw from that? That he did it. Yep, take it to the bank. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Let me give you a chance to punch that into your electronic Bibles. 
I use that method on vacation. It's really cool as long as the speaker doesn't go too fast. <laughs> yeah, and you can switch from translation to translation. Right, and that's really nice. Colossians 1.15, He, Messiah Yeshua, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, which is a poor translation. It means he existed before creation. But when it says he's the image of the invisible God, God in heaven is a spirit. You can't see a spirit. You can't touch a spirit. You can't nail a spirit to a tree. So what did God have to do to be crucified? He had to take on a body of flesh and blood. Verse 16 says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. That phrase means, if Messiah ever told it to stop being the heavens and the earth, it would all go away. But what in verse 16 defeats Mormonism? Mormonism teaches that God was once a human being like you and I, who ascended to Godhood, and that Yeshua and Satan were just simple human beings like us. They were brothers, in fact. And God, since he wasn't smart enough to think of it himself, said, hey, give me a plan for creation. And he liked Yeshua, didn't like the devil, so Yeshua got to be the Lord, and Lucifer got to be Satan. What does this say? It says Messiah created the thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. That includes Satan and his host. Yes? They also teach that Adam is the one who became God, the father, but Adam sinned, and God can't sin. Correct. There's all sorts of contradictions in Mormonism. Yep, all kinds. It's one of the worst of the cults as far as self-contradictory. Yep. What Mormonism embodies is Gnosticism. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Brother Lane. Yes, sir. When uh, Yeshua was being tempted or tested by uh, Satan in the wilderness, why did Satan say that if you'll bow down to me, I'll give you all the power when Jesus gave him the power that he had to begin with and created him? Oh, because Satan isn't too bright. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Hey, if Satan was was very bright, don't you think he'd have fallen down on his knees and begged for forgiveness? But you don't see that anywhere, do you? Yeah. So, yeah, verse 11 was actually written in Aramaic. Hmm. Interesting. Why would that have been? Jeremiah 10, 11. Because who's he talking to? He's talking to the pagans. As they were in Babylon. What language did the Babylonians speak? Aramaic. So we wanted to make sure they could read it. To know that God was speaking to them. And they needed to repent too. So to continue the cross references for verse 12. That is the Lord who made the heavens and the earth and established the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens at his discretion. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5. Isaiah 42, verse 5. 
says, thus says God the Lord. You know, oftentimes they put those words in other orders. What are they trying to tell us? That, the, that God is whom? Is the Lord, is Yeshua, is our Messiah. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it. Who gives breath to the people on it. And spirit to those who walk on it. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 5. Isaiah 42 verse 5. So this verse is trying to tell us not only did God create the heavens and the earth, but he created us and breathed life into us. Do you ever stop to think that the word for breath and the word for spirit and the word for wind is the same in Hebrew? Why is this the only planet that has an atmosphere that's breathable around it. Is that the breath of God that he has given us to breathe in day after day that gives us life, that sustains us? I think so. Let's go to Isaiah 45, verse 12. When we get to heaven, we'll have to ask him if we still care. Isaiah 45, verse 12. I have made the earth and created man on it. I being whom? The Lord our God. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker. So I made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens and all their host I have commanded. What's it mean, all their host I have commanded? Why does the earth revolve around the sun? Because the Lord told it to. Why do the galaxies spin as they do? Because the Lord told them to. I have commanded it. Verse 13. I have raised him up. Him refers to Cyrus. In righteousness. And I will direct all his ways. God's point is. If I can make the heavens and the earth and everything in it. I can make Cyrus do what I want him to do. And what did Cyrus do? He allowed the children of Israel to go back to Israel and rebuild the temple. That was the very first thing God had the children of Israel do at the end of the Babylonian captivity was to go back and rebuild the temple. When Israel was regathered in 1948, what should have been their first thought? Let's rebuild the temple. They were invaded in 1948, 1956, 1967, 1973, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the Bible says that if Israel will keep the three pilgrim festivals faithfully, no man will covet their land. The longer that temple lies in ruins, the more problems they're going to have with the neighbors, huh? The secular ones are getting their shot at it first. Yep. And the Orthodox not much better. Nope. So God's looking for a people who will worship Him and praise Him in spirit and in truth. That's right. And maybe the Messianic Jews, of which there are many congregations now, will begin to fulfill God's plan. Perhaps so. Let's go to Isaiah 48, verse 13. 
You're right, there are many Messianic congregations. When I first went to Israel in 1992, you couldn't find one. And now they're everywhere, which is great. Did you? Let me interject here and ask you. I went in the same year. My experience was that every time I prayed, they reached the ceiling and came back. The, the two weeks I was there, it was like I was in a spiritual vacuum. Really? Although I had the spirit within me, and I spent the two weeks really witnessing to the families. I was with four different families, and witnessing to their children, to them, to their friends. Um, you know, they wanted to talk to an American, and that was the subject I wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. But in, in praying, it, it was like there was a, a dome over Israel, a shield. And the times I have been subsequently, I have not felt that at all. Hmm. So since the Messianic believers have been established around Israel, um, there's an opening there to God. I think it's a direct mm -hmm. opening. Good. But did you sense any type of oppression when you were there? I did not. Interesting. I did not. I saw some very exciting and wonderful things. Do you remember the movie Jesus Christ Superstar? When they did the crucifixion scene at the top of that mountain on that craggly old tree, this guy actually went dark and all that stuff. And, and the guy was playing Yeshua Got Saved. When we were up on that very same mountaintop, the very same thing happened. It went dark as sackcloth was the most interesting and there was thunder and an earthquake and there were a lot of people around going "Ooh, god's still moving yeah isaiah 48 13 we'll do verse 12 as an introduction to it listen to me O jacob not listen to me O israel listen to me O jacob when god calls him jacob you know they're in trouble right they're out of God's will. And Israel. There's Israel. So Jacob refers to the unrepentant and Israel to the repentant. My called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Where do you hear that quote in Revelation 22? Verse 13. Yeah. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth. In Revelation 22, those words are in red. I'm the first and the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. Whew. Isaiah 51, verse 13. Isaiah 51, verse 13. And you forget the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he was prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? What's God's point? God says, if you'll just worship me, you don't have to be afraid of the oppressor. 
Why do you turn away from God to pagan idols and then fear the enemy invaders? Again, did God not say that if they will keep the three pilgrim festivals, no man will covet their land? So why do they prefer to fear the enemy rather than to worship God? It's because they don't want to, what's that word? Repent. Go to Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah 51. Yeah. I mean, they can sell pork, they can defy the Sabbath, etc. Yeah. They're actually trying to legalize all that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a mess that's going on right now with the courts in Israel. I think they were interrupted somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Jeremiah 51 15. All those riots that the United States is sponsoring in Israel against the judicial reform is to try and keep the, the laws of God from being um, instigated, instiga followed, instituted, etc. Yeah. Jeremiah 51.15 says, He, the Lord of hosts, has made the earth by his power. So this he is the Lord of hosts from verse 14. He has established the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heaven by his understanding. When he utters his voice, there's a multitude of waters in the heavens. You mean the clouds didn't just naturally by osmosis get up there? No, God told them to get up there. Have you ever thought about how much a cloud weighs, how many tons? A lot, and yet it floats up there because God told it to. Says he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. That's evaporation. It causes the waters from the ground to go up to the sky. He makes lightnings for the rain and brings the wind out of his treasuries. What an awesome God we serve. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 10. We're up to verse 13. That was just a dramatic pause. When he utters his voice, there's a multitude of waters in the heavens. We just read that, didn't we? In Jeremiah 51. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. What do the winds also represent? Here we're talking about literal rain, literal lightning, literal wind and all that. But what do the winds in prophecy represent? War. Yeah, the angels are holding back the four winds, which are the wars, trying to keep the wars from happening until God's ready for them to go. Point is what? God controls it all. Including what's happening right now. Including what's happening right now. Verse 14. Everyone, referring to all of the idolaters, those who turn away from the God who has done and can do all this to sticks and stones and pieces of metal that can do absolutely nothing. Everyone is dull-hearted. What's it mean to be dull-hearted? 
of scarred emotions or scarred emotions compromised okay. feelings of, you know, they've, they've sinned and so they are immune to feeling repentance it's okay and there's more to it yeah, they don't they're not interested in God. They're not interested in God. Their hearts are not toward God. Their lips are. Yeah. Their lips profess to be God's children, but whereas their heart is far from them. Mm-hmm. No love for God in the heart. Without knowledge. Oh my. Where did God say, my people perish for lack of knowledge? That's in the book of Hosea. Go to the book of Hosea. Hosea means salvation, right? That's what it means. Chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Does that mean they didn't know how to memorize the periodic tables in chemistry class? Is that the knowledge we're talking about? No, of course not. Because you've rejected knowledge. Why did they lack knowledge? They rejected it. I will also reject you from being priests for me because you have forgotten what? The law of your God. I will also forget your children. The knowledge that they have refused to learn is Torah, Torah, the commandments of God. Oh my. And substituting their own commandments. What does God say that is? That is vanity. Emptiness. Without value or effect. So Jeremiah 10, back to verse 14. Everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image. Put to shame means he can do anything he wants to make that idol full of power and ability to remold the earth, and it isn't going to happen. So put to shame means he may have lofty ideals for it, but it's not going to come to pass. For his molded image is falsehood. Is it a God? It is not. It's a stick, a stone, or a piece of metal. And there is no breath in them. Meaning they are not God. They cannot speak. There's no life in them. They can, however, fall over in front of the ark of God. But, well, I'm sure God gave them a little push there. Let's go to Isaiah 48, verses 4 to 5. Isaiah 48, verses 4 to 5. I think you could repeat what you just said in that scripture for this artificial intelligence that is becoming such a big issue. Oh, yeah. That's going to be... It's going to be full of error, even though it can search all sorts of knowledge. It can be used for evil. Yeah, all we have to do is go back and watch the Terminator movies again. Yeah. Isaiah 48 verses 4 to 5 say, Because I knew that you were obstinate. What does obstinate mean? Stubborn. Stiff-necked. And your neck was an iron sinew. That's where I was going for stiff-necked, but okay. Same thing. And your brow bronze. Meaning what? You're stupid. And you won't learn. Verse 5. Even from the beginning I've declared it to you. Before it came to pass I proclaimed it to you. Lest you should say. My idol has done them. And my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. 
what he's talking about is why did God tell us the end from the beginning? Why did he prophesy the captivities, the returns, the first coming of Messiah, the second coming? So that we wouldn't sit back and go, oh, maybe Ishtar did that. No, God told us ahead of time when it comes to pass, we know he is the only true and living God. In Isaiah 42, verse 17. Isaiah 42, verse 17. In verse 14, God says, I've held my peace for a long time, which means one of these days he's going to let loose his anger. Verse 17 says, they shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images. Who say to the molded images, you are our gods. So what does God say? There's going to come a point in time when he's going to say, that's it. I've had enough. No more idolatry. It's going to cease. And we call that time the tribulation period, don't we? What will the majority of the world do in the tribulation period but worship the image of the beast and take the mark of the beast to show their worship? Yeah. Let's go to Habakkuk or Habakkuk, whichever you prefer. Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 18. When we see the Lord, I'm sure he's going to have a flat forehead from banging it against the wall. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 18, he says, What profit is the image that his maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it, to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood, awake. Why? Is the wood going to awake? No. To silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. Like in Isaiah, God just simply says, why would you possibly want to put your faith in a piece of wood or a stone or a piece of metal? Yeah, what did the northern kingdom of Israel do when God sent these beautiful crops in? They made sacrifices to Baal and Ishtar to thank them for the wonderful crops they sent. Do you have any wonder that God stopped the rain? And for years it didn't rain. What do you think happened to those crops? And Elijah went up there and said, Hey, you call out to your gods. I'll call out to the Lord and let's see who's really God. Remember? And when it was all over, who did the people worship? Baal and Ishtar. It did not dissuade them from their idol worship. That's why God finally sent them into captivity. And they have not yet returned. 
Why does he call them obstinate and stiff-necked? If you had seen that display at the Mukracha on Mount Carmel, would you have turned to the true and living God? I bet you would have. I would hope so too. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 10. We're up to verse 15. Actually, part of the reason there that they kept on worshiping Baal and Ishtar is that he killed 450 of their false prophets, which is like, that's about all of them, wasn't it? <laughs> so, Unfortunately, nobody, it was not enough. There's nobody left to report it to the people, really. <laughs> the king was there, he could have told them. But in verse 15 of Jeremiah 10, it says, They are futile. What does futile mean? No value. Worthless. A work of errors. But aren't they pretty? No. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Meaning in the tribulation period when God's wrath is poured out, those idols are going to perish. As well as those who worship them and will not repent. Verse 16, God is referred to as the portion of Israel. Meaning he is all that they need. Verse 16, the portion of Jacob is not like them. The portion of Jacob is God. He is not like the pagan idols. Who had to create him out of a piece of wood or metal or stone? Nobody. He's the creator. And that's what God says is so hard to understand. People want to worship their own creation. How many of you, when you were first grader, molded a piece of clay into an ashtray? We all did, didn't we? Did you then bow down and worship the ashtray? No, you're smarter than that. But these people, yeah, not so much. The portion of Jacob is not like them, not like the idols. For he is the maker of all things. He wasn't made by people, he made the people. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. So the portion of Jacob is the Lord of hosts. And we all know who the Lord of hosts is. He leads the heavenly armies in Revelation 19.11. Verse 17 says, Gather up your wares from the land, O inhabitant of the fortress. The fortress is Jerusalem. Has that great big high thick wall which protects the people inside from the armies that are on the outside. God says, pack your bags. You're leaving. These walls will not protect you because you're not looking to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to protect you. You're looking to your pagan idols. Hmm. So pack your bags. You're leaving. But, but he's actually, if I remember right, he's talking to people who refuse to listen. Yes. So everything he says is wasted on them. Yep. And God told Jeremiah, they're not going to listen to you. Yeah, from the start. From the start. And he said, you toughen up because you're fixing to send you to a bunch of hard-headed people that won't listen to you. Right. But the point is, God still 
try to reach the people. And he warned them. He warned them. And he warned them. Yep. And everyone who's left in the city that said, I don't care that God told us to go into captivity. I'm not going. They're going to end up dead. Each and every one. Verse 18 is about he is going to empty out Judah completely. Verse 18 says, For thus says the Lord. That's the tetragrammaton. And they've already said in verse 16, it's the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts is the one who leads the armies of heaven when judgment comes. Behold, what does behold mean? Something important is going to follow. Pay attention to this. Listen up, folks. I will throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land. What land? Israel. Judah, Israel. Yeah. The northern kingdom is already gone, yeah. but Judah is going to be emptied out. When he says, I'm going to throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land, he means he's going to empty it. And will distress them that they may find it so. The false prophets are telling them, God won't let anybody destroy this city. God loves us. God loves us, that's right. He will bless us, he will protect us, even though we're praying to our Baal idols and our Ishtar idols and our Moloch idols and sacrificing our children and raping and pillaging. God's going to love us anyway. I'm glad there's none of that preaching going on today. That you can walk in sin and God will still accept you anyway? Mm -hmm. hmm. I have some very clever explanations for why that's so. Will any of them persuade God? I don't think so. Uh, no. They, they certainly per persuade a lot of their followers. Yep. Verse 19 says, Woe is me for my hurt. You got to understand, who is me and my? Is Jeremiah. Yeah. So this is Jeremiah's response. He is going to lament for Judah and Jerusalem. Have you heard that he's called the weeping prophet? Yes. That's because he's weeping for Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, the Temple, Judah, its inhabitants, because they will not listen. I've been reading posts by a lot of preachers over the last few days really saying I may as well just leave the ministry because I can't get anybody to listen anymore. Nobody wants to hear the word of God. Nobody wants to hear a call to repentance. They, everybody thinks that they can do whatever they want and God will just pour blessings on them like Santa Claus at Christmas time. And they want the preacher to preach blessings on that. And that's what it said it was going to happen in 2 Timothy chapter 4, huh? Itching ears. Yep. Woe is me for my hurt. His hurt is for the people. They won't listen. He knows what's coming, and they don't want to hear it. My wound is severe. But I say truly, this is an infirmity, and I must bear it. God called him to be a watchman. He called him to preach repentance. And that's what he's got to do. I'm sure that 
If Jeremiah was alive today, he would say, remember this guy Jonah? God called him to go and he said, I'm going the other way. And after he was done fishing, he decided that he would, well, go preach to Nineveh after all. So Jeremiah is saying, he called me to preach. I got to preach it. If nobody listens, I still have to preach it. Verse 20 says, my tent is plundered. What does he mean by his tent? He's talking about the people in Jerusalem that he's talking to directly. And all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me and they are no more. It's like Jerusalem itself is speaking. But you remember the verses in the book of Isaiah where Jerusalem has to lengthen its cords and stretch out its stakes because the children are coming back in numbers that they never knew about. So this is the prophecy that is going to get devastated. But God reminds us that that devastation is not forever. There will be a regathering. So verse 20, my tent is plundered, all my cords are broken, my children have gone from me, they are no more. There is no one to pitch my tent anymore or set up my curtains. Talking specifically now about the temple. And let's go back to Isaiah 54, which is where the strings have to get the... Tent pegs have to get stretched and the tent cords have to be stretched. Isaiah 54 verses 1 to 8. Single barren, you who have not born. He's talking about Jerusalem. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. By the end of the tribulation period, what portion of Israel is left in the land? There's one-third left. There's not one-third left in the land. Those in Jerusalem, if you remember, fled at the middle of the tribulation period for Petra. So the land of Israel has been, how do I put it politely, cleansed of the Jewish people. But when Messiah returns, what happens to the Jewish people? They get brought back in from where? From all over. So this is Jerusalem going, wait a minute, where are all these children coming from? They're coming from all the nations from which they've been scattered. Verse 4 says, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth, will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. Who's the maker? That's God. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. From mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Question. Yes, sir, go ahead. 
this Isaiah comes before Jeremiah in the Bible. Correct. Time-wise. Um, Time-wise, Jeremiah is being fulfilled long ago in Isaiah and the future yet. That's what it seems like. I don't know why they switched the positions in the scripture because... Because God said, glance at to show yourself approved. Yes. No. Not, not historical at all, is it? Right. No. He said, study to show yourself approved. That's something I've had many discussions with this week. People say, well, we're only talking within a verse or two. You're saying it's, it doesn't take place at the same time. Well, look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The first clause was 2,000 years ago. The second clause hasn't happened yet. So there's 2,000 years within the sentence. Mm -hmm. So the fact that one comes before another doesn't mean the events are in any kind of chronological order. I had a chronological Bible one time, and it didn't make sense either. Yeah, I bet it didn't. You couldn't find anything. <laughs> yeah. If you read through just the book of Daniel, which only has 12 chapters, they're not in a chronological order. They go back and forth every which way. Same with some of the Chronicles and Kings and some of the other things. You'd be reading along and suddenly it ends and you're in another book and then it ends and you're back in that book. Yeah, but what does Daniel 12, 4 say? At the time of the end, men shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. All righty, back to the scriptures. We're up to verse 21. Verse 21 says, For the shepherds have become dull-hearted. The shepherds of Israel, the prophets, the priests, and the kings. They're the ones whom God gave the authority and the responsibility to lead Israel to God. To make sure that the people followed after God. Avoided all pagan idolatry. And clung to the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. And did they do it? No, for the shepherds have become dull-hearted. If the shepherds don't know which way to go, what does that do to the sheep? It's even worse, yeah. And have not sought the Lord. The prophets, priests, and kings are leading the people astray, not to God. Therefore they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. What's that mean, their flocks shall be scattered? Captivity. What if the prophets, priests, and kings in Israel, from the time Joshua led them across the river, had led them to worship the true and living God in spirit and in truth? Would have been great. They never would have gone into captivity, right? Wouldn't have happened. But let's keep a finger here and go to Ezekiel chapter 34. Yep. Chapter what? Ezekiel chapter 34. Thank you. Yep, we'll just do verses 1 through 6 because our time's getting away from me. Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 6. Oh, I might have to jump further ahead than that, but we'll start with 1 through 6. And the word of the Lord. Well, you know from John 1.1, 1, 1, in, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, what is that word saying? It's a quote. So the word of the Lord, our Messiah Yeshua, brought a saying. Son of man, that's Ezekiel, 
Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Those are the prophets, priests, and kings. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds. Should read, Thus says my Lord, the Lord, to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Who are shepherds supposed to feed? The sheep, the flock. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat, meaning the best of the sheep, and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. Is that what God intended the prophets and priests and kings to do to? Never. That's right. Verse 5, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. The people went astray because the prophets, priests, and kings did not lead them to God. And they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. The beasts, remember Daniel? Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Or actually, lions and leopards and bears, oh my. But just as much, oh my. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Talking about all those pagan idolatry places. They're all on the high places. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth and no one was seeking or searching for them. And then God says, you're going to get it. But drop down to verse 11. Just because this is so cool. For thus says... The Lord God is actually my Lord, the Lord. Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he's among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. I'll bring them to their own land. This is the regathering into the Messianic kingdom. I'll feed them on the mountains of Israel and the valleys and all the inhabited places of the country. Verse 14 is so neat. I'll feed them in good pasture, and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good field and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. In the book of John, when it discusses the feeding of the 5,000, that's up on the high mountains of Israel. And in our English New Testament, it says, have the disciples have them sit down, but the Greek says, have them lie down. Messiah was saying, I am the good shepherd that was prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 34. I'm trying to gather you together like a chick gathers her chicks under her wings, remember? On the high mountains of Israel, they'll lie down in good fold and I will feed them. Verse 15, I will feed my flock and I'll make them lie down, says the Lord, my Lord, my Lord, the Lord. He did that literally. How many times in John does he say, I'm the good shepherd? This is what it refers back to. I am the good shepherd. Let's go to Micah chapter 3. Micah chapter 3. 
And that makes you think of Mika Mocha just sing it. Mm -hmm. Micah chapter 3. Verse 11. Micah chapter 3, verse 11. The shepherds of Israel were supposed to be feeding the flock instead. Here's what they're doing. First time, her heads judge for a bribe. Mm. That means no justice. Means whoever gives me the biggest bribe is the winner in court. Is that justice? It is not. Her priests teach for a pay. What did Messiah say in Matthew 10 8? Let's go over to Matthew 10 8. But keep a finger in Micah 3. Of course, I probably should have said that sooner. Matthew 10 8. He sends out the apostles, right? The disciples, and commands them, saying, among other things, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. And yet, if we go back to Micah chapter 3, verse 11, her priests teach for pay. Now you're supposed to send in money if you want the prophet to pray for you. Yep. The third section says in verse 11, and her prophets divine for money. Do you think they're going to give you an honest prophecy if you're going to have to pay them for it? Or are they going to tell you what you're paying them to tell you? Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Uh, that's the prophets, priests, and kings right there. It's been going on for a long time. How does God feel about it? You think He would have stepped in thousands of years ago and do something about it, but yeah. He just keeps like saying, "That is not going to fly." <laughs> Israel would have been so blessed down the ages if the prophets, priests, and kings had led them in a godly manner mm -hmm. to worship the true and living God. So would America. Next, I would have gone to Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, but we already have. Oh, but let's turn over there anyway. We only read the one verse. I want to do 6 through 10. Hosea chapter 4. Verses 6 all the way through 10. It tells us the consequence of the false shepherds. Verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I also reject you from being priest for me. Because you've forgotten the Torah, the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity. And it shall be like people like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry but not increase. Because they have ceased obeying the Lord. Why did the people cease obeying? Because the prophets, priests, and kings stopped obeying. 
Uh, Wayne, what was that reference? That was Hosea chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Thank you. You're welcome. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 22. Behold, you know to pay attention, some important's about to happen. The noise of the report has come. And a great commotion out of the north country. Just put in your notes. That means Babylon is coming. To make the cities of Judah desolate. A den of jackals. Babylon's coming. But because they keep using the phrase the Lord of hosts. Is it only referring to Babylon? Or are there more invasions to come from the north? The battle of Gog and Magog comes from where? From the north. Mm. So the things that happen with the Babylonian invasion will happen again in the day of the Lord. As Jerusalem gets destroyed and abandoned, what will happen when the Jewish people flee to Petra and those that don't flee are destroyed? It'll happen again. Yep. Babylon is coming. When it says to make the city of Judah desolate, a den of jackals, it means without inhabitant. Jackals don't live among people. Verse 23. Jeremiah 10, verse 23. Let me give you a chance to find it. O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Which means we can't follow our own hearts and do what's right in our own eyes. We'll go astray. If we do what's right in our own eyes and it'll cause us to go astray, what should we be walking after? After God. We should be walking in his ways. We should be following in his commandments. He's created good works that we should walk in them. That we should want, that we should walk in them. What does that mean, that we should walk in them? It mean that we should live them, right? Our halakha. Our halakha. We should live as he commanded us to live. So verse 24 says, O Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. That's a prayer for God to be merciful in judgment. Because if God pours out his judgment without mercy, nothing is left. Nothing is left. No one can withstand it. Verse 25. Oh, man, this verse. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles, the pagans, who do not know you and on the families who do not call on your name for they have eaten up Jacob devoured him and consumed him and made his dwelling place desolate what's that a prayer for judgment, judgment on who on the nations that have destroyed Israel down through the ages. So those that have taken Israel captive, 
not just to fulfill the word of God, but to fulfill their own personal selfish ambitions. It says, God, make them answer for what they've done. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. What about Hamas and what they've just done? Do you think they will avoid God's judgment? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Also, the, the amazing rise of anti-Semitism in the news right now. The amazing rise of anti-Semitism in our very own country. It's, it's not just our country, but it's political leaders, the head of the UN. Yep, all around the world. It's like insanity, but they are, these are evil people. I am most offended, though, at what's in our own country. Oh, yeah, yeah. Watching the prophecy update this week, they focused on a particular school called George Washington University. I'm a graduate of George Washington University at the National Law Center. And the university put up pro-Hamas and anti-Israel literature across the campus. I got an email from them today, and they got one from me, I tell you. But there's more to verse 25 than just talking about bringing judgment upon Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the Muslim nations that are going to attack Israel in these last days. Pour out your fury on Gentiles. But then what's that next clause? who do not know you. That's what characterizes the Gentiles, is they do not know you. Turn to John 17, verse 3. What does it mean to know God? John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life. You're not there yet. Let me give you a minute. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Yeshua the Messiah whom you have sent. So do these Gentile nations know God? The answer is no. How do you know whether they do or don't know God, then or now? The test is in 1 John 2. Yep, go to 1 John 2. The prayer of the prophet was that God would pour out his fury on those who do not know God. And that's exactly what's going to happen. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. What did we just read a few, well, it's probably a couple minutes ago now, about all liars. They all have their part in the lake of fire. He's trying to tell us that if you know God, you will be obedient to God. You have faith in God. You have love for God. You have eternal life. If you don't know God, you do not love God. You don't have faith in God. You're not obedient to God. What's the prophet praying for? Fury. Is fury being poured out on you a good thing when it's coming from the Lord or a bad thing? 
Yep. And on the families, it says in verse 25, who do not call on your name. Yeah. If they're not calling on the name of the Lord, who are they calling on the name of? They're idolatrous images, eh? They're calling it God. So would that, I was going to say, they talk about the family, would that be Judah? Yeah, talking about families are what make up nations. The families are described in Genesis chapter 10. In God's eyes, there's 70 nations based upon they're the descendants of whom. Question. Go ahead. In your understanding, the the kids that were at the music festival at the termination of the uh, feasts um, were they secular Jews or were they religious Jews who were just celebrating because Simchatora had just been had and all this? Answer is I don't know. You don't know. I have not heard enough about who was there. It's a good question, though. But chapter 11, are we ready for chapter 11? The word. Yes, some. Uh, Rachel. He said that who do not call on your name, but call on idolatrous images. Would that include uh, Easter and Christmas and Halloween? Dipper. All those pagan things. Yeah. What did God say in Deuteronomy 12? Did he say, take some of these things and use them in worship of me? Or did he say, no? Don't worship me that way. No. I hate that. Yeah. And an idol doesn't have to be a piece of wood, metal, or stone. It could be whom do you obey rather than God. Just close your eyes and think back to the Garden of Eden, but not too long you fall asleep. But think back to the Garden of Eden. God said, thou shalt not eat from the tree. And the serpent said, eat from the tree. What happened when they obeyed Satan instead of God? Did it matter that it was Satan? Does it matter who it is that says, disregard the commandments of God and do what I command you instead? Is that any less idolatry? It isn't. Does that make me worry for people? It does. Does Matthew chapter 7 say most people who think they're saved are not? And why are they not, it goes on to say, because they follow false teachers. And they don't keep the commandments of God. And Messiah in Matthew 7 says, look at the teacher you're following. If they're not following God's commandments, how can they be leading you correctly? Are they any different than the false shepherds of Ezekiel 34? That's why he calls them wolves in sheep's clothing. Anyway, Jeremiah 11 verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying. That word saying tells us that these words didn't just come by inspiration, but they actually came from the lips of the Lord himself, right? The first word is here. The words of this covenant. What's a covenant? A covenant is a set of mutual promises. God promises you this if you promise God that. Otherwise we would call it a contract. 
and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But that word hear doesn't just mean listen to. It means to obey. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 19. A lot of the confusion in the church today is they think that the law is the covenant. The covenant is the series of promises in Exodus chapter 19. In chapter 19 verse 5. says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Meaning that is the offer. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. That's their promise. So they promise, I'll keep whatever commandments you give me. And you'll set me above all people and make me a special treasure, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. The commandments don't start until chapter 20. But the covenant's entered in chapter 19. So they didn't really promise anything specific in terms of command. Just that all that you command, we will do. Where's the covenant? In verses 5 through 7. In verse 5 is the offer. In verse 8 is the answer, the promise. So those set of mutual promises, God says, if you will do this, I'll do that. And the people said, we'll do what you ask. That's the covenant. They promise that they will obey his voice. Meaning, whatever he commands us, we'll do it. Let's compare this to 1 Peter chapter 2. So the mutual promises in Exodus 19, God says, if you'll obey me, I will give you all these special statuses. And people say, we're going to obey you then. And then they didn't. That's called breach of contract. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. If one person breaches the contract, does that nullify the whole contract? For instance, in a marriage contract. The answer is, if it's a contract under seal, the answer is no. Was the contract sealed by blood? Yes, it was. So therefore, a covenant under seal cannot be annulled. But the people broke it. The people broke it, which meant they lost the benefits of it. They didn't get what they could have received in blessings. Yeah, it just seems to me like that broke the covenant, therefore it's broken. God's not responsible for his side of it because they didn't ever fulfill this. For those people, yes. But for the others that do fulfill it, then the covenant isn't done away with. No, it's inclusive. I understand it's, that. 
But the people who broke their side lost the blessings that they could have had. Yeah, yeah God doesn't have to do his part. And that's where the teaching that you get the blessings no matter what you do, uh, that is just nowhere in Scripture. No. Do you see that word, if, yeah. in Exodus over over over. chapter 19, verse 5? That's right. So let's compare 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. In the new covenant, which is actually the renewed covenant, it's the new word is kainos, not neos. It says in verse 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Is that not the very same promise that was made in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5? It is. It's simply being offered again. To whomever will accept it. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who once were not a people. But are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy. But now have obtained mercy. So they have been grafted into the covenant. That goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, that covenant got sealed with the blood of animals. The new covenant is sealed by the blood of Messiah, which is the better sealing. Blood of Messiah. In the Exodus chapter 19 covenant, the commandments get written on tablets of stone and scrolls of animal cloth. They're external to you. In the new covenant, they're written upon your heart and mind. They're internal. They're done because of our love for God, not out of fear of punishment from God. If you love me, comma, keep my commandments. What is the love of God? That we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. But people want to look at the law as the covenant and say that that covenant was done away with. The only problem with that is you can't do away with a covenant once it's sealed. What did God say in Psalm 89, verse 34? My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Now, in the covenant of Exodus 19, it was if you do this, then I'm obligated for that. And when the people failed to live up to it, God didn't have to do the blessings that he promised. But for those who come later, who are grafted in, sealed by the blood of Messiah, what if we don't want to keep the commandments either? We don't want to do our side. We want to breach the covenant. But we want to hold God to his side when we won't do ours. Let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. First Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 to 24. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 to 24. So Samuel said, who was Samuel? He was a prophet. He was not just a prophet, but he was what else? He was the last judge of Israel before Israel had a king. 
Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? In other words, does God want you to sin and bring him an offering or not to sin in the first place? Not to sin in the first place. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed, that's another way of saying obey, than the fat of rams. For rebellion, that is rebellion against God, is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness, that is stubbornness refusing to obey God, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. I don't see jaws dropping. What did Messiah promise us in Revelation 1.6? That we would be priests and kings. What does God do with kings who reject his word and won't follow his commandments? Rejects them from being king. Hmm. Psalm 50. Psalm 50. Can we live in outright disobedience to God and believe that we're on the path to heaven? The answer is, yes, we can believe it. But come judgment day, what are we going to hear? Depart from me, you practice lawlessness. Psalm 50, starting in verse 7. This is a psalm of Asaph. The Bible tells us Asaph was a seer, meaning a prophet. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds in the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving, and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to declare my statutes, or take my covenant in your mouth? In other words, to say I'm in covenant with the Lord God, when you won't be obedient to me? Seeing you hate instruction, and cast my words behind you. When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. That's one of those veiled threats without a veil, right? Absolutely. 
Now consider this, you who forget God. Deuteronomy 11, Jeremiah 16, those who forget God are those who want. Do not keep his commandments. Lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. In other words, repent or else. Isaiah 66 tells us that God has two categories, his servants and his enemies, which is the middle ground. There isn't one. Malachi 4. Malachi 4. And then now that we have batteries in the clock, I see this will have to be our last one. Malachi is right before Matthew. Malachi 4.4. 4. Malachi verses 1 to 3 is a warning that judgment day is coming. And we're all going to have to stand before God in judgment. And the wicked are going to go up like stubble before a flame. Verse 2 is about Messiah is going to come. He will give us an opportunity for salvation. We better take it. Because in verse 3, the wicked are going to get destroyed. And then verse 4, which we came here for, says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. He's talking about judgment day. When he says, remember the law of Moses, my servant. I'm sure there's people that have taken an ink pen and wrote in, but only until Messiah is crucified, then forget it. But where is that in the scripture? Answer is, it's not. So, we've run out of time. We'll have to stop here. Pick up next time, Lord willing, in Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 3.